I think just really remember that it's not a club where the door is locked and you can't get in because you don't know the right person. Write something brilliant. Yeah. Write something so good that no one will be able to ignore you. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Anne Patchett. And you are in for such a treat here on October 31st at the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and it can be ghostly meeting your heroes. You never know if they will match the image you have of them in your head. If you've been a fan for years, as I have been, of this award-winning author of many New York Times bestselling books, including Bel Canto, Commonwealth, and Truth and Beauty, you just pray that you don't screw up and that, please God, she enjoys herself. Well, pinch me, you guys, because I think Anne did enjoy herself. I say that because she stayed more than two hours. I edited it down, of course, but can you imagine what a kick that was for me? This month marks our three-year anniversary of the show, and if you had told me back in 2015 that I'd even have Anne on as a guest and that we'd still be gossiping and laughing off the record like girlfriends at a sleepover after 120 minutes, I would have said you were sniffing some fairy dust. There will be lots of sweets in this audio goodie bag, and I hope you take this as a reminder to keep putting your time and passion into the thing or things you find most delicious. God, you just never know. Okay, we're going to talk more about agents, about writing bestsellers and what that looks like in the day-to-day of a marriage. We'll cover movie deals, getting paid, where her ideas come from, how you win, even when facing loser reviews. And we'll hear her take on the story Liz Gilbert has made famous about the novel they miraculously shared through the ethers. Anne is an indie bookstore owner of Parnassus Books in her hometown of Nashville, And she has a really cool perspective on what books she wants to sell and why Fifty Shades of Grey is a gateway drug to reading. We'll also chat about her latest book that pubs on November 13th. It's called Nashville, Scenes from the New American South. It's gorgeous. 175 photographs by acclaimed photographer Heidi Ross in which Anne writes the prose. One more thing. Anne told me to throw her down the river for this. But last month's new studio quality sound wasn't going to cut it for her. Yeah, Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Oprah has had her on Super Soul Sunday. She even made the audience laugh and cheer on the Colbert Report. But downloading Chrome to run our program was beyond her. Too techie. (laughs) I still get it. So in setting up our old phone conference line, I set it for two hours to pad for any problems that could arise. But the only problem was that in going so long, I didn't set it to record long enough. Our conversation, therefore, ends abruptly, mid-chat, without any goodbyes. Dang, I loved our goodbye. But there you go. Keeping it super pro status over here, y'all. Welcome. No TV, no social media. You read like a fiend. Is that your secret? No TV, no social media? In the spirit of all honesty, as I want to get off on the right foot, there is a television in the house. (laughs) I don't actually know how to use it. When my husband and I got married, one of the many reasons that I had not wanting to get married is I said I didn't want to live in a house with a television. 
And my husband said, I don't feel like I should have to give the television up just because you don't want to live in a house with one. Right. So when we got married, there is a television here, but as it turns out, he doesn't watch it. Okay. Um, and so it's really never on. He watches one football game a week during football season, and that is the only time it's on. Wow. And every week it takes everything we have to turn the television on. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it. But I've always hated television. So. Well, I'm noticing a trend here. I spoke with Seth Godin, who doesn't watch TV, doesn't mm-hmm. use Twitter. And it seems like a lot of the really prolific people I speak with are very busy reading and writing and therefore not wasting their time, quote-unquote, on the boob tube. Hmm. People keep telling me about all of these amazing series and how the best writing is on Netflix now. And I read television reviews, and I read the series reviews in the Times. But I just think, one, where would I find the time to binge watch an amazing television show. And two, if I wanted to pick up a hobby, I don't want it to be based around my eyeballs. I know. So my <laughs> eyeballs are exhausted. I know. I so I don't want to like stop reading so I can watch a series. Mm, I so get yeah. it. My fiance and I binge Game of Thrones. Because we had just heard from just too many people. We thought, okay, so we'll try it. But I still don't know how to use my Apple TV. We have Netflix. I think I've used it twice. When we had Stephen Pressfield on last month, he said something really interesting. He said he thinks our country is in a collective nervous breakdown right now over social media and over being tempted with so many things that pull our focus. And he said, I think 99% of us are avoiding our art. Yeah. I think it's probably very true. I still think that getting email was the single biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Mm. And that's the only thing that I have. I don't go and read things on the internet. I don't go to websites. They don't do social media. I don't text. And still, I've never texted. I always say to people now, when I give them my phone number, this is a home phone. And if you text, it's like, shouting down a well, nothing is going to come back. (laughs) Or I'll run into some neighbor at a party and they'll be really huffy and I'll say, what's up? And they'll say, well, you know, I've texted you like five times and you've never texted me back. I'm like, that's because you're texting my home phone that rings next to my bed. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So how do you get your ideas? Do they whisper? Do they talk? Do they yell? Do they come fully formed in visions or just like a slow curiosity? I go out and find them. I go out looking for them. They don't come to me. (laughs) No ideas are knocking on my door. Um, It's really, I think, the ability to follow a chain and to not grab on too hard at any point. So I'll have an idea, but then I just have to sit with it for a really long time because then it will turn into another idea and it will turn into another idea. And inevitably, by the time I write something, it has absolutely no connection to what I had originally started out with. Well, and that kind of reminds me of this, forgive me, but I got to go there to the State of Wonder story with Liz Gilbert, especially because... Mm -hmm. Not only have I heard her talk about it multiple times, but they just launched the TED podcast and she was asked, 
Chris asked her again about this state of wonder, mystical, magical story with the two of you. But I don't think I've ever heard your take on it. Do you care to go there? Sure. No, (laughs) it's fine. It's true. What's really funny is long before Big Magic, it was a story that I used to tell in talks because I'm out on the lecture circuit. You know, kind of one of my talks revolved around this. So it was very funny to me that Liz wrote it in a book. I was (laughs) like, oh, no, I can't use that. (laughs) But she sent me the pages before the book came out and said, do you agree with this? Is this your memory of what happened? And I said, yes, it really is. It's maybe not my explanation of what happened, but I don't know that I have an explanation. I had a really interesting experience last week. Liz was in town. She was in Nashville, where I live. And she was speaking at an executive retreat, corporate thing. And the other speaker was Tony Doerr. And I said, oh, I really want to come and listen to this because I have a bookstore and I hear people give readings and book talks all the time, but I don't have the opportunity to watch people do this thing that I do, which is just go and stand on a stage for an hour and talk. Sure. And so I was really interested and there were only a hundred people in the audience and I went and watched the two of them and I have taken a hiatus from doing those things. And my takeaway from the whole process of watching them and listening to what they had to say, they were both magnificent. They gave great talks. I don't think there was anybody in the room except for me who thought that they were giving the exact same talk. And they were giving the exact same talk I always give. (laughs) And what I realized, even though they were so different in their presentation and in their examples, when you talk about creativity and ideas, we're all at the end of the day going to say the same exact thing, which is it's work and it's a job and it's hard and you're going to fail and it's a lot of fun. And if it's important to you, you'll make time for it in your life and you have to take it seriously. And everything they were saying, I was thinking, oh my God, I don't ever have to give another talk again. This material has been really well covered. And it was thrilling to get to hear them. So yes, Liz and I had the same idea for a book. There was definitely transference. But then listening to her talk and to Tony's talk, I thought, Jesus, you know, maybe there just aren't that many ideas. (laughs) Maybe we're all saying the same thing. Well, just back to that global mind, right? We're just all one. Right. Hmm. I heard you talking once, I don't remember if it was in reference to Belcanto or something where you said, I think you were talking about life imitating art, and you said imagination gets a couple of months ahead of you. That was a powerful sentence to me. That was like you were saying that there's some prophecy there. Did I read that right? Well, I'm trying to remember ever saying that because... (laughs) Anytime anyone ever quotes something back to me, I'm like, wow, really? (laughs) Um, But yes, I know basically what I must have been talking about, which is I make things up in novels. And I feel like I am 
very, very creative. I really got this amazing imagination. And then the book comes out and no end of people come up to me and say, oh, that happened to me. Exactly. That happened to my sister. <laughs> but the best example of that is when I wrote Run. And that book had been out for a while. In fact, I think it was in paperback. And the main character of the book was named Bernard Doyle. And Bernard Doyle was actually a distant cousin of mine. And he had two African-American adopted sons in the book. And he was the mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Those are fairly specific things. Sure. And when the book was in paperback, I went and gave a talk at Marquette in Wisconsin. And so many people said, oh, you know the governor, you know the governor. His last name was Doyle, and he had two African-American adopted sons. And I don't remember their names either, but in the book, the kids were Teddy and Tip, and his kids' names had that same sort of assonance. (laughs) A, I was horrified, and B, the book had been out for a year, and this had never come up. (laughs) And I wrote a letter to the governor, and I sent him a copy of the book. And I said, I know you don't have time to read my novel, but you might want to have your lawyer read it because you might want to sue me. And it just seems so outrageous that I didn't know this. And he wrote me back right away. Like, I got a response within a week. Handwritten note, so lovely, saying, oh, Anne, everyone in my family read the book. We loved it. We liked to pretend that it was about us. And it made me wonder if I had been overbearing with my sons and wanting them to be politicians. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) So, yes, you can imagine something, but it's not mystical at all. It is that there is no such thing as a new story. And that, Mm. I guess, comes back to the whole thing about me and Liz and having one idea. Or Liz and Tony and I all giving the same talk on creativity. (laughs) There just aren't that many ideas. All right. Okay. But when Liz talks about your State of Wonder book and her Amazon book, and she's like, wait a minute, it's not a genre. It's not a thing to be a spinster from Minnesota who's in love with her boss who goes to the Amazon for the big company she works for and solves the mystery. Like, that's not really a common story, Anne. Neither is a political figure named Doyle with two okay, gotcha. adopted gotcha. black sons. And that's <laughs> true. I swear to you, it was not that on some level I was following Wisconsin politics and I knew this. Wow. I did not know this. Oh, that's amazing. Absolutely the case. I mean, the fact that I wrote Bel Canto and did not know Renee Fleming, did not know Anything about Renee Fleming. Yeah, that's cracker. And then, you know, now she's like my bestie and we travel together. And when I go to the Met and I read her bio and it lists all of her awards and honors and it says, and Ann Patchett based the character of Roxanne (laughs) Austin on Miss Fleming. And I think, yeah, sure, that's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's got to be such an out-of-body weird experience for you. But it happens over and over and over again. And to me, 
what it points to is there's nothing new under the sun. Mm, okay, that makes perfect sense. I just saw Del Canto. It was one of my favorite books. Going into the movie, I thought, oh, I'm not going to cry. I've already done that with the book, and books are way better than movies anyway, and yada, yada. I bawled my eyes out in that movie several times. Just the whole thing, that montage, I don't want to give too much away, but that montage at around 50, 55 minutes, uh, she's singing and the English lessons going on and the swimming in the empty pool and the playing chess and the running in the sun and the sublime dinner scene. I was just like, this is some of the most beautiful filmmaking. I just wept. Wow. What is that like for you to be the person who created these characters to then see? I mean, I know you're an executive producer, but what is it like to see that? Let me just say, I was an executive producer because at one point there was option money due and the money wasn't available. And so they said, we don't have the money, but we'll make (laughs) you an executive producer. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I had nothing to do with any aspect of that film. And I only saw it a couple of weeks ago. No I kidding. Didn't read, I didn't read the script. You I didn't, didn't go to the daily, set. I didn't, nothing? Not one single thing. And in fact, I waited and waited until it was out. <laughs> wow. And then I went to the theater and saw it. Because at that point, there was nothing that could be done. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm really glad you liked the movie. And, you know, the experience that I had was much more with the opera. Yes. Which I also didn't see until opening night. But that was different because I was much more emotionally connected to the opera and to those people than I was to the film. When they put that team together for the opera, and I did go up and I met all of those people, and I said, if I can help you, call me. And if I can help you more by not interfering in your process at all, you will never hear from me. And I am here if you need me, but I will not come to you. And they said, thank you very much. And that was that. So I saw it on opening night and I remember (laughs) about two and a half hours in thinking, oh man, this isn't going to end well. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all my fault. These people are all going to die, and it's all my fault. Ah, They are. Well, if you Uh, live. (laughs) Yeah. That's hilarious. I was raised with opera. My father was a librarian for a symphony. And my mother's lifelong goal was to be a librarian. So we spent an awful lot of my childhood donating time and being in libraries. And so I just, uh, I just, I loved the book. I felt like the way that you wrote about opera was so beautiful in the book and could never, ever be captured on screen. But I just, especially in the middle, the middle to the end of the movie just completely captured me. It was, just, anyway. I'm so glad. Yeah, and, and I thought Julianne thing... Moore looked so believable. It was, how could anybody fake singing like that? It was just phenomenal. She was wonderful. She was lovely. And as was Ken Watanabe. Oh, God. They were really all terrific. Delightful. They really were. So, Power of the Pen, are you still working on that book about women voting? No. No? No, I'm not. I abandoned it. You did? It died. (laughs) In the best possible way. I am writing a novel, and I have been on a tight, self-imposed schedule because... The voting book needed to come out in April 2020. So I needed to get the novel finished 
by right around now so I could start working on the voting book. And what happened is last year, probably a year ago or nine months ago or something, this woman named Erin Geiger-Smith contacted my publisher. She saw me doing an interview with Reese Witherspoon in which I was talking about the voting book. And Erin reached out to HarperCollins and said, I am passionate about this. I want to be helpful to Anne in any way. Does she need a research assistant? Well, Erin writes for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She has a law degree. She has a master's in journalism from Columbia. She's way overqualified to be my research assistant. She writes for all sorts of places. So I hired her. And the deal was, I said, you know, we'll pick a list of topics every month. You do the research. Send me the files. Send me the books. And I'll pay you every month. And then when I finish writing my novel, because I can't think about this while I'm writing my novel, I'll open up the box. I'll read all this material. I'll synthesize it. I'll write the book. So Erin is, she's just incredible. She's brilliant. She is conducting interviews. She's sending me books every month that are all underlined and flagged. She is sending me boxes of information, and I'm just stuffing it in the closet, literally and figuratively. And I'm working on my novel. And I got to the end of the novel in September, and it wasn't any good. It failed. I made a huge mistake. In the novel? Oh, yep. I hate that. I had never had that happen before, actually. Oh, awful. <laughs> and I know what I did wrong and I know how to fix it, but yeah. I knew that there wasn't a way now that I could finish the novel and do the voting book in time. Yeah. So I went to HarperCollins and I said, guess what? I know this woman who is so much smarter than I am and so much more knowledgeable and she's already done all the work. Oh, awesome. And they signed her and she's writing the book. Oh, I love it. And you'll help promote it. Because I'll do everything in the world, but I gathered up all those files and all the book and all her work and I put it in a box and I mailed it back to her. And she signed with my agent and my editor and it's wonderful. It's like a Broadway story where the star breaks her ankle and the understudy goes on and feels the show. Oh, that's she's so good. going to do a book that is going to be so much better than anything I could have done because this really is what she breathes. So I'm thrilled. It's really, really such a great... That's a great story. Yeah. That's a yeah. great story. Now, your agent is at ICM. Is that your original agent or did you switch agents? I switched agents. So I am now with a guy named Dan Noelop. A lot of our listeners are desperately wanting an agent. What was your first agent experience, and do you have any advice for people? Gosh, okay. So when I was 20 years old, I published a story in the Paris Review, and I was taking a class with Alan Gerganis at Sarah Lawrence. And Alan got me signed on with his agent, who was Binky Urban. Oh, Binky at ICM. When I was 20. And when I was 25, I still hadn't written a book. (laughs) And Binky tossed me 
yep. to her assistant who was becoming an agent, and that was Lisa Bankoff. And I stayed with Lisa for, gosh, from the time I was 25 until I was probably 50, or maybe even a little older. I can't remember. Maybe 52. I'm 54 now. And then, hey, hi. And then I went to Dan, and Dan had been Lisa's assistant. So that's the story of me and agents. The thing about finding an agent, so I don't know anything about this, right? Because Mm -hmm. this is something that I did when I was 25 Ah, that I didn't even do myself, right? Right. (laughs) Right. So what do I know? But what I know is that as far as fiction and nonfiction are concerned, not the case with poetry, there is still money to be made. And where commerce is involved, people are looking. And agents that I know, and I know a lot of them, really, really are seriously looking for a great book that's going to sell. And I think that it can be incredibly hard to get an agent and maybe you have to send your work to 20 different agents and you want to find the person who loves your work and feels passionately about it. So I send people to my agent or agents that I know all the time and they don't take them. It's not as if if Ann Patchett sends you to that agent, that agent is going to sign them. That's not true. It's really a connection that those two people need to make. But I think just really remember that it's not a club where the door is locked Mm. and you can't get in because you don't know the right person. Write something brilliant. Write something so good that no one will be able to ignore you. Mm. And then you'll get in. Oh, that's such great advice. I think you can write something that's good and be rejected unfairly by a million people. Yeah. I think if you write something that's great, you will be accepted. Oh, God, I like that distinction. And I think you're absolutely right because I know... So many of my friends are beautiful writers, and some will struggle to get published, and then somebody will write something that is so phenomenal, and they'll take 20 meetings. 20 yeah. editors will call them yeah. over the course of two days. That's right. So you can feel the difference. There's such a difference between something that's good and something that's outstanding. Yes. And the problem is, <laughs> I used to live in Montana, and <laughs> I loved Montana. I just absolutely loved it. But there were a lot of people who believed that to get published, you had to be a New Yorker. You had to know somebody on the inside. You had to be, right. you had to have the secret handshake. And nobody in Montana <laughs> had the secret handshake because they were too different. And it's just not true. Right. Really, everybody's looking for somebody from Montana. Or people think that their work is too pure and too literary and everybody wants to publish junk. Well, that's actually not true either. You know, George Saunders is doing just fine. And you can write something that is very pure and very literary. It just needs to be brilliant. And also what I tell people is an agent is only going to take on so many projects in a year because they want to do right by the clients they already have. So 
they have to really, really love your subject matter because they're going to have to sit with it for a couple of years and nurture it and nurture you. And maybe it has nothing to do with you. They've already done that subject. They're not interested in it anymore. It doesn't matter how good it is or for whatever reason, it just turns them off. That has nothing to do with anything. Just don't take it personal. Obviously, if your query is getting rejected and nobody wants the manuscript or nobody wants your proposal because the one-page letter you're sending out isn't getting any heat, well, then something's wrong with that letter, right? Right. (laughs) You've got to ramp up that. There's no hook in that letter. Something's missing. But it can be a long game. Gosh, some of the greatest books of all time were rejected over and over and over. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is no more slush pile. Right. You know, there is no more just sending your manuscript to Random House, which I think a lot of people don't understand. You have to get an agent. It is the only way the system works anymore. One of my neighbors who lives down the street is a novelist, and we dog walk together and we <laughs> talk about our day. And her agent retired, and she was without agent. And she sent her new book to three or four different people, one at a time, who rejected it. And this is a woman in her 60s who has published a lot of books that have not done spectacularly well, but have sold. And she was feeling really worried. And then she sent it to this agent who was like, oh my God, I've been waiting for you my whole life. I love this book so much. I can hardly wait to work with you. This is so incredible. And he was like, how fantastic. That somebody didn't take her because she was a friend of a friend as a favor, but not really connect to the work. She held out for true love Uh, and she found it. Yeah, there's a thousand agents in the United States. It's like Match.com. It only takes one that's the true match. I found my guy on (laughs) (laughs) Match.com. Fabulous. Which is something I'm thinking you probably wouldn't have done with yours. I wouldn't. You know, to me, that's like getting a book of matches. When I hear Match.com, I think it used to be that you met somebody at a bar and you wrote your phone number on the book of matches and you were smoking a cigarette. Oh, God, that's amazing. But you are a matchmaker. You are a professional matchmaker. Can I tell you, all I've been doing today is matchmaking. I have been working so hard on Uh behalf of two galleys that I I just read that I loved and immediately thought, oh my God, I know who is going to love this book. (laughs) And calling the publicist and saying, send me six galleys because Uh I know the people who should be reading this. And I'm going to do this work. And there are moments that I think, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) (laughs) But it is matchmaking. I mean, when I read a book, I just read A New Galley by Nell Freudenberger, who is such a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I've read all of her books and love them. But this one was terrific. And I knew that it was a book for Richard Powers, who 20 years ago said to me, Not enough people write novels about science. The Uh, reason I wrote Run was because Richard Powers said to me, not enough people write novels about science. He didn't even say it to me. He said it in a talk that I happened to be in the room for. And I was just like, okay, Richard Powers, if you think that people should be writing books about science, 
I'm going to write a book about an ichthyologist. And so Nell's new book is about a physicist. It is so stone-cold, brilliant, accurate, ambitious, giant, amazing science, everything right. I have a dear cousin friend who is a physicist, and I sent it to him, and he said, every single thing in this book is perfect. So I emailed Richard Powers, and I was like, okay, you've got to read this book. He said, I will read it, but I'm going to Switzerland in three days. And I was like, okay, I'm going to call Nell's editor and get it FedExed. It'll be at your house at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning so you can read it on the plane. And that's the kind of thing I do. I know. My dad was a matchmaker. He was a stockbroker, but really he Uh put people together. That was his greatest goal in life. And I'm exactly... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Your dad was a stockbroker? Yeah. Because a minute ago, he was a librarian. He was a librarian for a symphony in his spare time. That's what he did as his gift. So he gave that, and he did it every Thursday night in San Francisco. And then he would go away in the summertime to this camp and do it there. They had this world-famous symphony at this camp, and all the president, all the Republican presidents. My father was very, what's the word? He was a big humanitarian, and you would never have expected him to be an environmental tree-hugging Republican, but he was. And so he wasn't a member of this club from the traditional standpoint because it was for the hoity-toloity or whatever, however you say that, hoi polloi. But he was... Or the hoity-toity. There you go. (laughs) Camp. But the camp, it was the Bohemian Club in San Francisco. And um, he was brought in because of his love of opera and classical music and his vast knowledge of all things classical. I mean, he could hear three beats of any symphony or any recorded music and know exactly who was the conductor and where Good it was Lord. done and the whole thing. So I was raised that with that. That would be like my dream superhero power. Yeah. Okay. We need to talk about your Nashville book. You know, I grew up in Los Altos in Northern California, which was a semi-rural town. Now it's known as Northern Silicon Valley, where Steve Jobs started Apple computers in his garage. But I used to ride my bike to school past orchards that are now mostly gone. I'd pick my mom wildflowers on the way home from school. What was once our train tracks turned into our expressway. (laughs) But the key for me, the town had and has at its heart and soul right next to each other, the library and the fruit stand both of which I swear I will die if those go away, both of which still stand. The houses keep getting bigger and the fancy coffee shops get more plentiful, but that library and that fruit stand tell me that I'm home. So how do you handle it? You're still, I don't live there anymore, so I don't have to face the changes constantly. How do you handle it when you're living in the same place in which you grew up that is changing so drastically? And right now, just in the last five years or the last five months, and I can take a turn down a street that I have gone down a million times and not know where I am. No. I can come and rip out entire neighborhoods. And all I know is that we are alive and we are marching towards our death. Yeah. As the history of the world and the future of the world dictates. Yeah. And everything is change except death. And it has 
always been so for everyone. So I could complain or say I liked it better when the Acme Feed and Seed sold chicken chow instead of (laughs) whatever fancy thing that they're selling now. But that is really right up there with saying I don't like getting older. You know Mm. what? You are. Right. We are all moving forward. The city isn't for me. One of the things that strikes me so much about this book is it is Heidi's Nashville. Heidi Ross took these pictures of the things that she saw and she was interested in. Her friends, the places she went, they were not the places that I go. I learned so much about my city from looking at that book. And I was always saying to her, shouldn't we put in this? Shouldn't we put in that? And she was like, yeah, wow, I've never been there. I don't know anything about that. Wow. But what I love is, here's this fantastic 40-year-old woman who's a great artist, and this is her vision of the city. And the fact that nobody messed with that, that it wasn't 10 different photographers, that we weren't putting in archival photographs, that it's one person's clear vision of a moment is what makes this book beautiful and special. It is. It's so special. And also, I think about Meridian, Mississippi, which is where my husband is from and where my 96-year-old mother-in-law lives in the house where he grew up. Wow. And we keep going back to Meridian, and nothing, let me tell you, nothing moves forward (laughs) in Meridian. It is moving Backwards. Oh, wow. It's like we go down there and every time it seems like there are even more houses for sale or boarded over. Yeah. And my husband, every single time we drive down the street, says, that's where Bobby Phillips lived. That's where Tom Ward lived. That's where we used to have our Boy Scout troop there. All of his memories in these places, but nothing has changed. So there's no life. It maybe feels sort of lifeless. Absolutely. Isn't that interesting? Because you say in your preface or intro that's so beautiful, you say, this is how the past works. The new thing sits in the place where the old thing was. And so what you're saying is you can have a place where all the old things still are, but the life is gone. At least in Nashville, there's new things, but there's new life. Well, and if you think about life, if you think about a tree, It grows, it takes its nutrients out of the soil, it disrupts the plants around it, it changes the way we see the light. It gets bigger and it moves. It's not the same little sapling that you planted when you were six. That's not the way life works. It grows, it flourishes, it dies. It grows, it flourishes, it dies. Hmm. So I feel fortunate to be in a place of growth. And if we can bring this back around, to the larger political conversation of what's going on in our country and a romanticism for the past. Maybe that is why I refuse to engage, to think, well, you know, what I want is to freeze the world in the place that I was happy when I was 10. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't exist. And guess what? You weren't happy anyway. <laughs> the past is a lie that we tell ourselves. So true. The past wasn't any better and it was worse for almost everyone. So don't bitch about those condos. <laughs> what a great perspective. What uh-huh. I love, 
so much about this new book that's going to be hitting stores right as this show will go live is that you can't not travel back in time to your own childhood, to your own hometown to see what's become. No matter how hard you try. Right? And in your case, it was the feed store that's now a shishi restaurant as your Mm -hmm. acne farm and seed or the coffee bar called Fido that used to be a pet store. (laughs) How was that for you traveling back and putting your beautiful text to these beautiful pictures in this place that you love so much? The whole experience around that Nashville book was crazy because I knew the editor, Liz Sullivan at Harper, and is a friend of mine. And she called me up and she said, I'm not asking you to be involved with this, but do you think it would sell at Parnassus as a bookstore owner? Do you think it would sell to have a book about Nashville? And I said, oh my God, 10 people come into the store every day and I know exactly what they want. There are books about Nashville, but I know exactly what they're looking for. And I said, I'll do it if I can work with my friend, Heidi Ross, who is the photographer, who I love, and I love her work. And so anyway, it was something that just came to me, and I thought, okay, all I've got to do is write this text and and write the captions, and it's no big deal, and it's two days' worth of work. The problem (laughs) was that (laughs) Heidi is so shy and not somebody who could deal with Liz who's a very high-powered New York editor, and they really couldn't exchange a sentence with one another. They're both wonderful people. They're both dear friends, but there was no communication. And so I really wound up being a part of this every single step of the way. And there was virtually no money involved because it was a very expensive book to produce. Yeah, and they pictures. don't think it's not like it's going to be a John Grisham novel or something. Sure, sure. <laughs> and most of the money went to Heidi, which was right and proper. And the bit of money that was coming to me, which was the same as the bit of money that was going to John Meacham for doing the introduction, I called John and I said, let's just direct donate our money. Nice. And he said, oh, I've got a scholarship fund at the University of the South, which was also where my husband went to college. I said, great, let's just both send our money there. That's terrific. And I learned an important lesson. Oh. (laughs) You don't want to work that hard on something for a year and not get paid. Oh, God, what a good point. Even if somebody had sent me $500 or something, I I am putting so much time into this and I didn't get anything for it. Mm. Um, <laughs> get a percentage of, of royalties if there no, are no, no. And really, all of this was me. I was like, right. no, it's Heidi. Yeah, I mean, you're being ultra. Heidi did the work. It's her pictures. It's her vision. It's her book. Of the three of us, she's the one who doesn't have money. John and I have money. If there is any royalty stream in the future, and God only knows, it should definitely go to Heidi. I don't need that. Right. I don't need it anyway. It was just, there really is something psychological about it. <laughs> oh, for sure. to do like a one-off or give a talk and donate yeah. the money or do yeah. an essay and donate the money. But to have it be a whole project that oh, is yeah, so no time-consuming, you're like, yeah, I should have gotten paid. <laughs> but what's interesting about what you said, a couple of things that I think is interesting. I've heard you say in the past that you used to write the book that you wanted to read, and now you write the book as a bookseller. You write the book that's missing in the store. 
Yeah. So maybe so this is part of your things. gift back to the book gods that have bestowed you with so many blessings because you're really giving a book that your community needs. It was in the store. That's very, very true. And also, we have the bookstore in the airport now. Yes. And I think about people coming through the airport and getting this book. And one of the things, this is so crazy, that you would never know if you didn't own a bookstore, something that people want is a beautiful book with a lot of white space on the page that they can use as a guest book. So when they get married, instead of buying a guest book, they want a beautiful book that people can find. If they have a shower, if they have a going away party, a welcome to town, whatever. So that was really important in my thinking of how this book was going to be put together. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true with the voting book. I never wanted to write that book. I wanted to sell that book. (laughs) So what's the writing book that you recommend the most in your store? You know, that's an interesting question because I don't read writing books. Um, Did you ever when you were starting out? You know, when I was starting out, they didn't exist. Oh, right. Well, And the only writing, and this is not like, oh, I've read them so I can tell you what my favorite (laughs) one is. The one that I have read that I loved was Stephen King's. Oh, on writing. And And not even that I agreed with it. I didn't agree with a lot of it. But what I loved is that we all feel so passionately about the way we work and to be handed this template, you know, it's not like this is going to work for you, but look, this is how Steve King writes his books. Right. And he was coming to Nashville and I am not only a technophobe, I am a horror phobe and I don't like to read scary things and I don't read Stephen King. And I just admire Stephen King so much and all he does and all he stands for. And he's a great guy and he's coming to town and I'm hosting this event. And I think I've got to read a Stephen King book. And I read that one and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I recommend. And honestly, when somebody comes to me and says, I need this piece of writing advice, I send them to what I wrote which is the getaway car, and that is every single thing I know about writing, every piece of advice I have. And when somebody starts saying, I want to write a book, I don't know how, I don't know how to do this, and I always say, read this essay, Mm -hmm. 50 pages, and if you have any more questions for me, (laughs) finished reading it, come back and I'll answer them. And no one has ever come back. Oh, that's (laughs) so good. That brings up something that's funny. Somebody was just telling me the other day, they were like, when you told me this piece of advice, it helped me more than anything. So I'm going to tell you what that piece of advice is, and then I'm going to ask you which piece of the getaway car have people said to you help them the most. The piece of advice that I tell all of my friends before they get published is this, and they're horrified when I tell them, and then they're always grateful, and that is don't ever expect your friends to read your book. They probably Mm -hmm. won't. And there's all sorts of reasons why they may not. They may not want to hurt your feelings if they don't like it. They're too busy. They think they already know it. Whatever, whatever. But don't ever expect your friends to read your book. And I can't tell you how many people have come back to me and said, oh my God, if you hadn't told me that, I would have lost my friends. I would have dumped them. I would be so miserable. But because I always follow it up with, just let it go. That's so funny. 
Our former governor, Phil Bredesen, who is running for the U.S. Senate and hopefully will win the U.S. Senate and is a friend and a great guy, and he had written a book on healthcare, and he was doing an event at the store, and he said, many more people will talk about your book than will buy your book, (laughs) and many more people will buy your book than will read your book, and many more people will start your book than will finish your book. And I thought that was really great. (laughs) But to me, the very best piece of advice is, If this is what you want to do, do it and take a certain amount of time every single day and sit down. And even if you don't write, don't check your phone, don't do anything else, sit down in front of this thing that you keep saying is the most important thing in your life. And Liz Gilbert talks about this, I think, in Big Magic. And she said, people are always, that's it. You know, I work three jobs and I don't have childcare and I don't have this and that and how can I possibly make the time to write? And Liz said, if you were having an affair, you would find the time. <gasps> God, that's so good. You would, even if it's just like five minutes in a stairwell, you would find it wow. if it was just this searing hot thing and you wouldn't need to talk about it. It would just be, you would stay awake, you would miss your meals, you would miss anything if it was an affair. So if this writing is the most important thing in your life, then if it is that important, then no one should be able to tear you away from it. Adrienne LeBlanc was at a conference and somebody said, how can I be a writer? How can I find the time to write? And she said, if you ask that question, then you're not. Just forget it. She said that really the more interesting question is, how can I stop? (laughs) (laughs) oh my god adrian how can i stop (laughs) because all i want to do is write i love the book you wrote about your marriage how do you balance when you get into that obsessive like i've always said that writing for me is like having an affair i get so obsessed with the process it can be hard to be a partner so how do you do that when you're really really in it how do you not ignore your husband (laughs) My husband, God love him, is a doctor who gets up in the morning, <laughs> on a suit, leaves the house at 7 o'clock, and comes home at 7 o'clock. Oh, so brilliant. He's gone, and he's, when he gets home, he's really tired. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting, and I learned this over and over again, is when I am working well, happily, every day, deeply engaged, I'm a terrific wife. Yeah. Um, and he comes home and I'm so glad to see him. I do not wish to go to Yado. I don't want to go away. I'm done by four o'clock. I don't ever write at night. And I am thrilled to go downstairs and make dinner and share it and be with him. So grateful for him to take me out of my head and to ground me and to love me and all right. of that. When I hate him and when I am a crummy wife <laughs> is when I'm not writing. Because when I'm not writing and I want to be writing, then I blame him. And I think if it wasn't for the fact that I had to make you dinner, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm doing the laundry and getting the gutters fixed and making your life so easy, I would be writing a brilliant novel. Mm. And that's when I'm a bitch. Mm. So when I am happy, and this, my friends, is the universal lesson, 
When I am happy with myself, I am happy with others. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, when I'm totally wrapped up in my novel and Carl calls and says, oh my God, I've got a meeting. I forgot I'm going to be an hour and a half late. And I'm like, you fly. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Live your dream, my love. <laughs> but if I haven't been writing all day and I've gone down to make dinner and then he calls and says, I'm going to be an hour and a half late. And I'm like, yeah, well, sure. That's easy for you. No, I'm just, I'm awful. Yeah. It goes back to that whole, you know, when mama's happy, everybody's happy. That's right. That's and, it. And I mean, the whole I'm Buddhist the thing of the greatest thing that you can do for the world is to be happy. The older I get, the more I realize that that's true. Because when someone that I love in my life is unhappy, it is such a rock in my heart. I know. And when the person I love is happy, I am free and buoyant. Oh. And I spread that happiness to the others who are around. It all ripples out, just like Robert Kennedy told us it would. Oh. <laughs> All right, so any face plants or favorite mistakes in your work? Ever embarrass yourself totally unprepared or out of your comfort zone? Yeah, really just weeks ago. <laughs> I made such a mistake in this novel that I had written. And two-thirds of the novel I thought were terrific, but they were all building up towards a plot twist that completely failed. I did not believe it on any level. and. It was so interesting to hear other people's responses. You know, when I said to people, oh, you know what? I wrote this book and it's no good and I'm going to have to start over again. And there were friends of mine who looked at me like I had just told them I had pancreatic cancer. And there were friends of mine who said, that is so badass of you. I am so proud of you. You go, girl. You're going to make something amazing now. And to me, the thing that I was happiest about was that no one else had read it. Oh. I, I wrote this book. I finished it. I read it. I knew exactly what I had done wrong. Yeah. And while I was reading it, I kept thinking, I've just got to get it to the point where Miley can read it. Miley Malloy is my best reader. and She's such a great editor. I just need to get this to a point where I can give it to Miley. And yeah. by the time I got to the end, I was like, oh, no. No, no, I do not have to waste Miley's time. Yeah, yeah. I am perfectly capable of knowing what I've done. So that was great. And I keep saying it was like burning a cake. <laughs> no, like you make the cake and you yeah. burn it. Yeah. And you think, oh, fuck, man, I burnt the cake. Wow. Can I have to make the cake again? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to like take my fingers and scrape out the fluffy stuff in the middle and just yeah. stand over the sink and eat it. But. It cannot be saved. It's a burnt cake, but it's not a dead child, you know? Oh, God. You know, we talked to Mary Carr a couple of years ago, and she talked about throwing away 1,200 pages of Liars Club. And then I talked to Rosie Walsh a couple of months ago, and she talked about throwing away 40,000 words three different times on Ghosted. And that just makes me feel so much better. I was talking with Laura Munson this morning, and we were celebrating the fact that she just sold her first novel. I mean, she had written like 14 novels in the drawer when I met her, I don't know, 10 years ago. This was before the memoir hit the New York Times list. This is not the story you think it is. She was saying, Linda, my God, I threw away 
hundred pages. At the very end, her agent was just about ready to go out with it. And then she was like, no, it's still not right. There's something in its way, even though it was in its ninth draft. So Laura edited it down again and took out a hundred pages. And when she did that, she could see what the book needed. And she wrote 50 new pages that made it truly sing and landed her the deal. But that's what I think people need to realize is how normal that is. Yeah. And yet I remember when I was young, I can remember there was a prologue on Bel Canto Mm. that I had worked on for six months. Now, whenever you work on something, whenever you spend six months writing 30 pages, it's because it's crap. (laughs) (laughs) And when I realized I was going to have to throw that out, I sat at the breakfast table and wept. Yeah. I was so crushed to think that I had lost all that time. And now I can look at this book and just think, oh, well, (laughs) yeah, you know what? I'm just so, so glad I didn't waste anyone's time. Oh, it's so true. It's about economy of words and economy of time. I did the same thing. I worked for about two months on the intro to the book for this podcast. It's called Beautiful Writers. And It's a hybrid. It's really a different writing book. It's like my struggling, clawing my way to the middle stories that start each chapter. And then we go into what the celebrity has to say. So like, you know, first chapter is permission and prophecy. And it's Guru Singh telling me in my, I was in my 20s, you're supposed to be a writer. What the hell are you doing hiding behind your dogs? I had a dog walking business that, by the way, (laughs) he didn't even know about. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm thinking, I thought gurus were supposed to be nice. Like, this guy's hardcore. And so I felt (laughs) super seen and also really judged all at the same time. But at any rate, so I tell that story and then follow it up is who gave Glennon permission? Who saw it for Glennon? Who saw it for Tom Hanks? Who saw it for Liz Gilbert before they saw it? So it's a different kind of writing book, right? It's like my arc, my writing memoir with all of these celebrity authors chiming in on the exact topic. So it follows the arc of finding an agent and how I got rejected a million times and all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, loving and loving it. And where it came from, this book, was it came from, I did exactly what you did, Anne. I wrote a 200,000 word divorce memoir and I was super attached to it. I love the title, My Midlife Mess. I mean, yay, 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 right? (laughs) Worked on it for years. 200,000 freaking words, whittled it down to 120,000 words. And I had meetings in New York with publishers. And at two days, I'm leaving in two days to go take meetings. And I read the book. And I had not read it straight through after cutting it. I had just worked relentlessly like, you know, 100 hours on this part of it, (laughs) 30 hours on that part of it. So when I went to read the whole thing two days before leaving, I didn't like it. I finished the book and I was absolutely heartbroken. I thought, oh my God, I killed my book. And now I have meetings. And I was talking with Martha Beck. She goes, don't go, Linda, don't go. Like, cancel your meetings. Forget it. And I was like, oh my God, I can't cancel my meetings. Anyway, I get to the meetings and they're like, wait a minute. We love these struggling writing stories. Can you give us more of those? Or people were like, wait, I love the divorce. Can we have more of that? But I was trying to do too much in one book scrapped it for a year, and it came back in the form of this book that I never could have seen. I never could have envisioned this book, like not in a million years, but it announced itself one day as they do. And you're grateful because had I sold that book, I promise you, 
I would not like that book. So I commend you. I commend you for pulling it. I pulled mine well, too, but after some weird meetings. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it doesn't matter. It just, it made me feel very lucky. I don't sell my books. I don't show them to anybody and I don't sell them until yeah. they are absolutely 100% done. Mm. And that's really rare for somebody at my career stage. Sure. But I just thought, well, you know, the only problem was the voting book. I solved sure. that problem so honorably. I know, so, right? So much better. <laughs> and now I'll get this novel taken care of and it will be the book that I'm proud of or it won't be. Mm. That's it. That's so good. That's so good. Okay, a few more questions. Some kids turn to books when they're young because life in the real world is just too damn hard. Like my mom was one of those bookworms as a little girl. Did any teasing or bullying or <laughs> devastation as a kid cause you to seek that sanctuary in books? No. Nobody hurt me. That's I was neither popular nor unpopular. I yeah. had friends. I went to a little Catholic girls' school. I could dig up some sad stories, but truly <laughs> really, everything was fine. I was treated very nicely. It's funny. My husband and I were talking about this a couple of hours ago, and he will say, you know, well, we both work so hard. We both work so hard to build our careers, and we ignored pleasures along the way because we were always working hard. And I said, you know, actually, I think that we were like rats who pushed the little button with our nose, and we got the corn pellet, and it was tasty, and we pushed it again, and we pushed it again. And we got so much constant reinforcement yeah. for doing well. Yeah. I read and I wrote and I read and I wrote and people told me that I was going to be a writer and people marveled that I read all of these books and I kept pushing my nose up against the little dopamine center that dropped out my corn pellets <laughs> and ate them with gusto. You know, I didn't do math and I didn't do sports because I didn't get the dopamine from it. So I played to my strengths. Constantly throughout my entire life. And my father was always on me about not being well-rounded. Like, try other things, for God's sakes. Play volleyball, you know, do something (laughs) you're not great at. And I didn't. And I was like one of those little Chinese gymnasts that was sent away at three. Yeah. (laughs) If I could walk on the balance beam. And in return, I got this spectacular life. So there's just no complaining. You know, even I didn't get into any trouble. I didn't stray from the path. I didn't become a drug addict. I didn't become an alcoholic. There was just too much positive reinforcement for writing. I published a story in the Paris Review when I was 20. You think I was going to take my nose off that corn release button? Oh, my God, no. It's so interesting, you know, when I interviewed Sandy Gallen for my first book, so this was in 1995, and he was a talent manager. He had put together the Sunny and Cher show and discovered Mm. Dolly Parton and Nicole Kidman and on and on. I mean, he was Michael Jackson's manager. And people said to him, like, dude, you got no other interests. You know, (laughs) get a life. And he's like, Mm. really? Because this is what it takes to be world class. It takes obsessive focus. It takes not watching the news every day. It takes paying attention to my art and that's it. And I learned a lot from that because 
over the years, I've been so obsessive about books my whole life. Over the years, I have felt guilty. It's like, you know, how many things I've missed, how many parties I didn't go to or reunions I didn't attend or double dates I didn't, you know, just on and on. I've been accused throughout my life of being boring. And if people want to see me, they got to come to my house. I mostly don't leave. (laughs) And it makes me feel bad sometimes. And then I go, yeah, and I'm doing what I feel like I'm here to do. Absolutely. It's a great gift. I've never cared at all what anybody thought of me. God bless you. Yeah, really. I mean, my hair is going gray and I don't wear makeup and I don't have a cell phone. So whatever. I'm so far (laughs) past it. I just feel like I go beneath the current in a way. And the older I get, the more I love books, the more I really just want to lie on the couch all day and read (laughs) and help books. Mm, and the, I love that about you. And it's interesting what you were saying about being boring. It's always been such a problem for me when I have a book out and people try to interview me because I am not a recovering heroin addict. I <laughs> read a lot. I you know I'm happy. There was no great trauma anywhere along the line. But that's why having this bookstore has been so great because now I have something to talk about. Oh, I know. Um, oh. And I am such a helpful, integrated member of my community. And I will spend my day taking a galley and thinking, okay, not, hey, editor of this person, I don't know, you should send this galley. But like, no, I'll sit down and write letters to these friends who I know will love this book and take it to the post office and mail it. And that's what I do. I know that you and our mutual friend, Allison Hill, over at Romans and Book Soup are in this consortium of indie owners who really have power of shaping what the indies do. I mean, how much have the other indies thanked you for your helping the whole book business? I don't think I have the power to shape what other indies do, but I am the spokesmodel for independent book selling and shop local and don't use Amazon. I mean, that's kind of what I do. I don't order the books. I don't use the cash register. I'm a disaster on the cash register. (laughs) There's so many things. I don't fire. I don't hire. I don't do anything. But I get out there and I am the face of it. I was on the Today Show Right. On Tuesday. Two days ago. Right, right. right. Two days ago. Right. And when the host says, I'm going to go home and order all these books on Amazon. And I was like, oh, honey, no, no, no. That's not what we do. And I feel like the universe just keeps tossing me these easy little balls where I have the opportunity in front of giant numbers of people. Yeah. And I say, support your local bookstore. And she says, no, no, you're right. We should order them from your bookstore. No, you don't order them from my bookstore. You order them from your bookstore. Mm. That's how it works. Mm. And when I say it, people think it's charming and funny and empowering. When other people say it, it doesn't go over so well. So this is my job. This is what I do. I go out in public and I promote all things independent. And community. I love it. I thought it was so hilarious when you were on the Colbert Report. You offered, you know, just order the books and I'll sign them for you. And then you're just barraged with the mother load of orders. <laughs> 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 and you're having to sign your hand off. 
and we had no idea what we were doing because um, the bookstore had been open for a couple of weeks. We had no idea what we were doing down in the basement with a roll of tape trying to get all of those things out in the mail. It was really kind of adorable. And I just love the whole non-judgmentalness about the way you look at things. Like when you say that Fifty Shades of Grey, people are coming in and buying that thing in droves and hiding it and saying, hey, you know, it's a terrible book, but when's the next one coming? And right. like you said it's the gateway drug. And I love that. Like just get people reading for God's sake. Absolutely. People who never read a book will never read a book. People who read a bad book may well read a better book. <laughs> I did a whole display when Fifty Shades was really big of Endless Love, Scott Spencer, mm-hmm. one of my mm-hmm. all-time top 10 favorite novels. Yeah. And I was like, people, there is a 17-page sex scene in this book. It is fortune hot. You can read an excellent book where people are going at it like bunnies. You don't have to read a bad book to read sex. Like, read your bad book. You like that? Made you hot? Come on in. Now read Endless Love. Now Uh let's see what it can really do. Not to mention the fact that she makes so much money for the publishing industry that the publishing industry can turn around and that's exactly right. Chances. That's exactly right. They they make so much money. They give it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to Laura Munson. She was just telling me the greatest thing that happened with her and her indie that it started out as this tiny little place in the 70s where people were like, they had to turn sideways to fit inside and the owners are like chain smoking marbles. And then by the time her book came out, her hit memoir, they had moved and it was now the Lake Forest bookstore, like this beautiful big bookstore. But this one indie not only helped launch her book, but it took... I think for the help that came out soon after, it was the number one store in the country that was selling copies of the help. And what Laura said was it was the displays. It's the way the indie owner decides to display a book and just celebrate a book that can just make all the difference for a title. I mean, do you love doing that? Do you love just making those displays and going? Well, and also the people who work in the store, you know, we disagree with one another. We each have our favorite and I'll be on the floor and see someone on the staff who I love like a daughter recommending passionately hand selling a book that I hate (laughs) and I just think this is what makes the world go round and there's one woman who works in the store named Sissy and Sissy and I disagree on all sorts of things and I couldn't possibly love Sissy more And I'll be in the grocery store and people will say, yeah, you know, I call ahead to see if Sissy's working because everything Sissy reads is what I want to read. I just want to be like Sissy. I want my kids to read the books that she reads. (laughs) I interviewed Reese Witherspoon a couple of weeks ago on stage in Nashville. And when we were backstage, her brother and sister-in-law and two little nieces came back and we were talking in the hall and these little girls, I don't know how old they were, but they were tiny. And I think all the Witherspoons are tiny, so they They're may tiny. have been older yeah. than yeah. I <laughs> was figuring. But these two girls were like, Sissy, we just love her. We wouldn't ever go to the store unless Sissy was there. We read everything Sissy tells us to read. Oh my God. <laughs> and yet, Sissy and I are always saying, oh, well, we can't ever agree on a book. But that's so fantastic. Yeah, that just thrills like that with movies. 
it's like every movie my mother and my sister like. I'm like, really? Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> and and they were what, far smarter than me, so yeah, it just makes right. the world go around. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. It can't just be your opinion about anything. We've just talked about how beautiful your career has been and how kind everybody's been and how it's been so blessed. And yet, I've heard you say you'll be on tour. It'll be six weeks of just grueling schedule. And every hotel you get to, there's like either a bad review waiting for you or somebody in line waiting at a signing to go, hey, have you seen this? I cut it out for you. Yes. (laughs) And no one has ever once brought me a great review that they cut out of the paper. But the number of people who very sadly, <laughs> quietly, with lowered eyes, push the little clipped out piece of paper across the desk to me, I didn't know if you had seen this. Yes, yes, I've seen this. <laughs> um, kind of cracks me up. That's just nuts. But there you go. There you go. And reviews, it is part of the price of doing business. Yeah. And I always say a good review will make me really happy for five minutes and a bad review will really hurt my feelings for five minutes. Yep. And then it's all gone. Barbara Kingsolver is coming to the store the 1st of November and her book pubbed on Tuesday of this week. And the review that she got in the Daily Times was just savage, just savage on pub day. And it was so unnecessarily mean. And I wrote her an email, you know, hey, girlfriend, I love you. I love your book. And she was like, what the hell? Just putting my big girl pants on and going forward. Meeting the people, loads of love, everything's great. Just thought, oh, you are such a grown-up. I love you. There's nothing else to do. Well, the thing that helped me the most with that and that I tell my clients about that helps them so much is my mentor, Betsy Rappaport, told me this years ago. She said, look at Eat, Pray, Love on Amazon, arguably one of the best books ever written. And you will find thousands of one-star and thousands of five-star reviews. Yeah. And I've done that now with everything. I've looked at Bel Canto because, again, one of my favorite books. And you have, you don't have thousands of one-star reviews, but you've got one-star reviews. Heck yeah. Where people are like, oh my God, this is so slow. I can't stand it. And then somebody else right next to them is saying, I could not put it down. I stayed up all night reading this. Well, and I stopped reading Amazon reviews probably around Bel Canto. And Elizabeth McCracken said to me, Think of a book that is unassailable and go read the Amazon review. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, like I read them for The Great Gatsby and 100 Years of Solitude. Yep. <laughs> they had plenty of ones. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so you've just got to go forward and say, this is the price of doing business. This is the way this business works. And at one time... There was a book that I loved. It was a memoir oh, by a writer I just adore, Abigail Thomas. Are you an Abigail Thomas no. reader? No, you, yet. I will be. You miss, you should read everything Abigail Thomas wrote. She would be so right up your alley. She would be your new hero. Start with Three Dog Life. 
And anyway, I had blurbed her new book, and it got the cruelest, most wrong-headed review I've ever seen. I mean, it was just off the charts. It was so bad and mean and stupid and made mistakes. It was terrible. And her editor, Abigail's editor, was a friend of mine. And the editor sent me an email and said, will you write a letter to the editor about this, about how terrible and unfair this is? And I said no, because I said, this is the price we pay. This is the system. This is the weather. You can't rail against it. This is the way life goes. Horrible books get shining front page reviews. Brilliant books get decimated. And there's nothing to do but accept that this is the system and go with it. Like the idea that I would fight a review, even (laughs) on the behalf of a book that I loved, seemed so wrong-headed to me. It seemed like I would be upsetting the gods, really, (laughs) by saying, oh, no, you can't write that review. I remember the review of Bel Canto in the Los Angeles Times called it a third-rate episode of Gilligan's Island. (gasps) Oh, (laughs) I don't know what to say. But there's nothing to do but laugh, you know? It was so exquisitely written. Are you effing kidding me? Uh, yeah, but that reviewer okay. just had a bad attitude. <laughs> okay, but like, also I won. You know, like yeah, you don't make the list for the prize. You get a horrible review, but then you sell a lot of copies or whatever. There are all sorts of ways in which you win, or you have a happy marriage, or you don't get pancreatic cancer, or your teeth are good, whatever. (laughs) You know, like you can't pick it apart and say, but I should have gotten that too. Like, don't ever go there. Oh, and I love that. We covered that a little bit when Tom Hanks was on and he was talking about his daughter being a screenwriter. And he said, just the act of writing the script is so nourishing for her that the whole issue of does it sell isn't even an issue because right. you're just so satisfied by the creative process. And I think that's one of the gifts that people who are obsessed with books like you give us when we hear you talk. It's the love of the craft. It's the love Absolutely. of the whole artistry and even the industry, the part of the industry that's matchmaking that you can control. Absolutely. Beautiful. And that you better be writing because you love to write. Not because you're hoping that people are going to read you, because that is so abstract and far down the line. There's no way to capture that. You have to just love what you're doing. A long time ago, this is actually a funny story. I was interviewed for PW, and it was around magician's assistant. And they sent a woman to Nashville for three days. And she didn't drive. And I picked her up every morning. I drove her around. We talked endlessly. I took her shopping. I took her to lunch. I made her dinner. I was so nice to her. And we went to Off-Broadway Shoe Warehouse. And as we were walking around, have you ever been to an Off-Broadway Shoe Warehouse? No, it's like a Quonset hut full of shoes. (laughs) 
and there's just these long aisles, and the sizes are all underneath. Nobody helps you. Just try on the shoes. Okay. So we're walking up and down. I don't remember that she was young. And I picked up a pair of black rubber thigh-high stiletto boots. And I held them up, and I said, wow, I bet I'd sell a lot of books if I wore these on book tour. (laughs) That was the opening of her piece. With no irony, with no chuckle. Ann Patchett wonders if she would sell more books on book tour if she wore black rubber thigh-high stiletto boots. And I made a decision at that point. I had two choices. I could either never give another interview or I could never read another interview that I'd given. So while I read reviews, Because you can learn something from reviews. All you can learn from reading an interview that you've given is that you shouldn't give interviews. You know, I had a woman, my first book came out, and I was so excited because the local paper, the Los Altos Town Crier, came Mm. to my parents' house to interview me. And to me, there was nothing better, right? The New York Times couldn't compare to the Los Altos Town Crier. I had walked by that beautiful building on Main Street my entire life. So they come to the house. We have this wonderful conversation. And I notice that she's not taking very many notes and she's not taping me. I thought, well, this is going to be really interesting. Maybe she has a photographic memory. (laughs) And the review came out and it was really sweet and kind. But I was completely misquoted. I mean, stuff I never said, not even close. People will say all the time, I mean, in quotes, that I'm talking about my husband, the surgeon. Okay, my husband's not a surgeon. He's an internist. (laughs) I don't get that wrong. I've never once gotten that wrong. And yet, every time they have me talking about my husband, it's that he's off doing surgery. It's because that somehow sounds more important. I guess. But then I've had the others. Just make it up. I've had the others extreme happen. So. I used to do celebrity cover stories for Balance Magazine. So one time I went to interview, I mean, I guess I'll say it, who cares? I went to interview Alanis Morissette, and we had such an amazing afternoon. I mean, we laughed our butts off. I thought, well, this is flawless. Mm -hmm. So I sent the interview to her manager when we were done. I didn't have her email, so I sent it to her manager. And I said, hey, there's a couple instances where she finished a thought mid-sentence. Like maybe I interrupted her or the tape wasn't clear. Something was garbled. So I finished her sentences thinking I knew what she was saying. Please just double check with her. Make sure that it was accurate. And if I get her sign off, great. If not, just have her change it and make it accurate to what she was trying to say. Mm -hmm. So he comes back to me and he said, she didn't say any of those things. And I was like, wait a minute. The, The things that he actually flagged were all the things she said verbatim. And the areas that I needed help with, they didn't flag. <laughs> so basically, people don't always remember what they say. Have and, you been and, listening to those Malcolm Gladwell podcasts this I season? I love him. I love him. I'm behind. I'm not all the way through. What did I miss? This season, it's all about memory and yes. how yes. people just, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, you know, people don't yep. remember. Well, and if you're blacked out, it's easy to forget. <laughs> well, that too. But yeah, people don't remember their own lives. It's fascinating. Yeah, I've actually had that over and over. At the magazine, you know, most magazines 
shy away from giving final editing. You are not supposed to give final sure. editing approval, but my editor allowed it. It was just so generous of her and it took extra time, but it was fantastic because after we were done, everybody loved their interviews because people get their own stories wrong. That's what I learned that was so shocking where people are like, oh, I told you something and actually I got the state wrong. It was five years later. I was actually with a different husband. I mean, people really get their own stories wrong. Taught me a lot. The very best interview I ever did as a writer was I interviewed Liz about committed for Mm. the Wall Street Journal. And the way we did it, and I didn't have any questions. You know, I'd come in with one question and then try to just have that conversation. So we were sitting in our pajamas in bed, (laughs) and I would type a question and hand her the computer, and she would read it and type the answer. And then hand it back, and I would read the answer, and I would type the question, and I handed her back the computer. (laughs) It was amazing. I bet, because when you (laughs) type, you get it more accurate than when you speak it. Right. And the first two questions I was asking her and trying to type, and I said, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm a rotten type. Here, you type it yourself. (laughs) It was the best interview ever, because it was... Not only completely accurate, it was spontaneous. And now when I interview people, which isn't very often, or if someone is interviewing me that I know, the very best thing to do is to say, let's both sit at our computers via email. You type the question, I'll type the answer, I'll send it back. You type yeah. another question based on that answer I'll send, and just do it yeah. that way. Yeah, that's Swallow. what I'm doing right now with the book. You know, the other day I needed some information on books. I was asking people, what are the writing books that influenced you? Like I asked you. Yeah. And I had forgotten to ask that of Stephen Pressfield and I really wanted to know what he would say. And he sent me back two pages of brilliant and very thorough information that's going to be super helpful. And he emailed it back to me in 15 minutes. I mean, it came out as quickly and easily as could be. That's fantastic. What was the Jane Fonda Vanessa Redgrave movie circa 1979? Oh. And she played Lillian Hellman. Yes. But the scene in which Jane Fonda throws her typewriter through the window, <laughs> that has sustained me and informed me more than any book on writing. When I think type, 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 and then just she just, just pitches it, it right out. Yeah, that's my favorite book on writing. So have you ever thrown your computer? I have not. But you know, it's like I don't have to because she did. Yes. It's a very funny thing. I'm such a cool, level-headed, even-tempered customer. Oh, my. my. Things just don't make me sad. So peaceful. I don't suffer from depression. I don't, you know, like, I am really steady. But that image, when I'm frustrated, will come (laughs) up in my head and make me smile. Julia, that's what the name is. Julia, yes. I knew it was a woman's name. And it's like, oh, thank you. You did it for me. Yeah. <laughs> Permission. Oh, you're so delightful. Thank you, Anne. Who were you? It was just a blast. And thank you for, thank you. You were so smart in how you wrote back to me yesterday. I was really impressed by people who can handle me because I don't think of myself as being really difficult. <laughs> my God, the second time I tried to download Chrome and it didn't work, and I thought, I'm just I'm not doing this. I'm out. I'm out. Forget it. I cannot do this. There's something that makes me go postal. 
when I'm trying to solve a computer problem. Yeah. And the fact that you were like, it's fine. We'll just do it on the phone. Like you didn't say, I'll walk you through it or let me explain this. You got the fact that I was right on the edge of the abyss. (laughs) Well, you know, we've gotten a little bit of harassment, like in the form of two people have said to me, when are you going to up the sound quality of your podcast? And, (laughs) you know, we have, I don't know, hundreds of five-star reviews on iTunes, but the two that really needle at me are the ones that are like, oh my God, my kid hates listening to this podcast in the car because the sound quality is so bad. And so just recently I switched over to this Zencaster and, you know, I'm well aware there are some people like Dave Eggers, we're going to do it on the cell phone. I'm well aware there are people that are just not going to do this newfangled technology. They're not going to. And what I'm worried about the two negative reviews when I have a loyal army of listeners who could give two shits because they just love the people I'm interviewing. So, Well, yeah. Also, Dave Eggers. Oh, I can hardly wait. I think he is a saint. Uh, I worship Dave Eggers. I can't tell you how much I worship him. Told you we cut off mid-chat. <laughs> it's true. I am a tech goddess. Mr. Eggers, wherever you are, probably not listening to podcasts, I hope you feel the love. And when you call in from your cell phone, I'll set it for three hours. Big love to Anne for being so generous with her time today. Find her on ParnassusBooks.net, where I highly recommend her blog, staff pics, and the shop dog diaries. Go for the dog pics, if nothing else. And remember to frequent your own local indie bookstore. That will make Anne happier than anything. As for the essay she spoke of, The Getaway Car, her best writerly advice, you can find that by purchasing This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. And while you're at it, pick up a copy of Nashville, Scenes from the New American South. Thanks so much for listening and helping to spread the word of this show to those you love. In that vein, we so appreciate your five stars over on iTunes. If you're aching to write or publish, I've opened up Carmel by the Sea writing retreat dates for the weeks of January 14th and February 18th. For more info, go to beautifulwriterspodcast.com. All the links are at the bottom of the page or bookmama.com. That's all the time we have. Until next time, write on.